The talk this evening is about the first uh, aspect, we could say, of mindfulness. And we'll begin this evening with a few moments uh, as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama over 2,500 years ago. So settling into your seat. Your body. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gotama. The arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver. The arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by these words. What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? Just who do you think you are anyway? the bodhisattva, the just-about-to-be-Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be-Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy and balanced within the deep power and the cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisattva, in his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated. 
never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we said, maybe not always quite like the Buddha sat on that night 2,500 years ago, but we sit and we practice with sincerity and determination. At home, alone, maybe with your sangha, with your practice community, and now here in retreat. As awakening beings, as we practice the particular qualities of heart and mind that were all so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop and deepen and mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually. It's inevitable that this happens if we just keep on practicing. So mindfulness has been mentioned already a number of times uh, in these few days together, and you've heard it many, many, many times over your years of practice. This evening we'll explore, hopefully maybe in a little bit more depth, certainly in more depth than I've talked about it so far, Um, this quality or factor of mind that is really the most fundamental underlying factor of our practice, mindfulness. And whether you're practicing right now in this retreat, whether your practice is, is rooted in insight, vipassana practice, or metta practice, or samatha, uh, anapanasati, concentration practice. It really is the under fundamental underlying factor of our practice. As we explore together this evening, allow the words to be a touch point, or uh, we could call it a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself, which is facilitated by what I like to call listening from the heart rather than listening from the head. So in support of this, it's helpful to really relax deeply in and through the body. So let's take just a couple of moments right now and drop into the body with a bright, easy attention and relaxing relaxing from head to toe letting the whole body heart and mind deeply relax into simple direct presence And with an open heart and mind, simply hearing. It's 
So, mindfulness. The Buddha spoke about, about mindfulness as being like a precious gem and that it's supported by seclusion, impartiality, and renunciation, the very conditions that we have here in retreat. A pervasive and deep mindfulness along with a calm, concentrated mind are really key factors for the mind, the heart, to ripen into the letting go that's necessary for awakening. I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all the factors of mind necessary for awakening. In fact, the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's really the factor of mind that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for liberation. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being, he called it, the chief. So maybe maybe a kind of male-female way of uh, speaking about mindfulness. We could say, I like to say, that mindfulness is the chief mother. And when it really, really begins to be established in us, it's the ingredient that offers us our greatest protection. The Pali word for mindfulness is sati. And it's sometimes translated as memory or to remember. So if we break that word down, to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. And I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget uh, to be mindful because of our strong habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but in fact to remain resting in the inertia of our habits. Once, uh, quite a number of years ago, in a Dhamma discussion with friends, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? I think it's a really good question, actually. And now, even a better question than it was when it was asked many years ago. Because there's this very valuable um, uh, process, we could say, or very valuable availability going on in, in culture, in Western culture, more than in uh, other cultures, the mindfulness movement. So there are a lot of people learning about and on some level practicing mindfulness, which is great, actually. But it also has uh, rendered mindfulness uh, to lose some of its depth in certain ways. Some of its potency has been dissipated. So, And it isn't necessarily being shared, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in certain circumstances, as a spiritual practice. But in our case, 
in the Buddha Dhamma, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? I think it's a great question. The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is just this. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. And in this case, meaning absolutely believing what comes uh, comes to be known uh, through cultivating a very powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Being receptive to what is. Without the forethought of concepts, past experience, or ideas of how we, we think it is, or how it should be, or how it could be. The great Indian teacher Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. This relationship to experience is sometimes called, particularly in the Zen tradition, the don't-know mind. With this great intimacy of mindful presence, opening us to understanding the way that it really is, which sometimes may appear so simple, so clear and so simple, that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in the inertia of our old habits, but to meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come really, really close and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects and it goes right into the object. And yet it's not a sticky or fixed kind of connection. Mindful attention is clear, fluid. It's a clear, fluid connection that we could say lights on an object just long enough and just deep enough to really, really know it. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. Mindfulness is a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. A non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience and at its best, purely receptive in its relationship to whatever's presenting itself in the present moment. And of course we pay attention to a whole range of experience, including things that we do quite uh, mechanically. Breathing, walking, bodily sensations, moving the body, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. We pay attention to 
phenomena that's pleasant, that might be wonderful and easy to be with. And we give attention to experience that is unpleasant, that might be difficult to be with. We open to all of it. No parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is the path to liberation, is our path to liberation. Mindfulness is about living in the action. Living in the action of the body, the heart, and the mind. Living in the present moment's experience. So, in a sense, we forget ourself. We, in a sense, lose our self, so to say, in what is. So that there's just what is without anything added or needing to be added, without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. With a mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The moment we think, I'm doing this or I'm doing that, We're recreating or creating or recreating a sense of a separate self. Creating a separation. A disconnection from the reality of the way way of things. And living in an idea. The idea of I. The idea of me. And the idea of mine. Instead of just simply and purely living in the action with mindfulness. The magic, we could say, and the great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of illusion. It takes us out of delusion and takes us directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. We're imprisoned, we could say, in the assumed appearance of things. And we get caught again and again and again in reactivity and attachment to these not clearly seen appearances. The result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. The Venerable Analayo says, puts it this way in his book, uh, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. And these are his words. The element of non-reactive, watchful receptivity of sati forms the foundation for Satipatthana, as an ingenious middle path, which neither suppresses the contents of experiences nor compulsively reacts to them. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. 
This technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing in this way, bare awareness is of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. And he goes on a little bit more. He goes on a lot, but in this case, just a little bit more. (laughs) Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. Very important. As a mental quality, sati represents the deliberate cultivation and a qualitative improvement of the receptive awareness that characterizes the initial stages of the perception process. No matter who we are, or where or how we live, all of us, all of us want to live with ease. All of us want happiness. And it seems that most of us, or many, many of us, hope and maybe even assume that much of our life experience at any given time is kind of permanently in place. And of course, from myriad perspectives, we want life to suit our passing fancies, suit our expectations, our deepest desires. And so, in relationship to this, many people spend most of their time and most of their energy trying to accomplish all of this through external experiences by getting this and that or getting him or her doing this and that going here and there and we go for or we try for sustaining satisfaction and contentment through the constantly changing world of our senses and our thoughts as well as through the myriad, constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives. And as many of you know, at least at times, none of this really works to provide that sustaining satisfaction, that happiness, that ease of being that we want that we hope for. The Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. He said that happiness arises when we're mindful. That's pretty simple. Not so easy, but happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we really take the Buddha's words to heart and we look closely in order to sense and to see and to know our experience directly. 
It's through our meditation practice that mindfulness is cultivated. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really truly bring our attention to the present moment. And we practice this over and over and over and over again. Moment by moment by moment. Once we relinquish the belief that there might be, or maybe there actually is, a more spiritually perfect or right moment than the one that we're in, we have then really, truly, and wholly embraced our life and infused it with the energy for awakening. Our practice is one of deep intimacy. The deepest intimacy with our own experiences, which as practice develops, as it expands and as it matures, becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, with all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware, intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment, to see and know what is, what really, truly is. So how is it in this present moment? And this present moment? And this present moment? This is really basically, this is the basic foundation of all forms of Buddhist practice. How is it in experiencing the I, E-Y-E, the ear, the nose, the tongue, touch? How is it in in experiencing the mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or what you want it to be or imagine it to be, or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to our present moment's experience is what allows clarity and a true understanding, or insight as it's very often called, to arise, to just simply and naturally arise, which it inevitably does. We don't really do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here. It's ever-present, immediately close, always and everywhere, right here, right now. And it's our greatest protection. Some years ago I was uh, teaching a a weekly class at our local sangha here, a mindfulness class over a period of a number of weeks. And uh, we'd have our discussion and our practice and then the people would take it home uh, for that week and then they'd come back and share something that occurred uh, in their life, in their practice, their life as their practice and their formal practice. Um, 
uh, at the beginning of each class. So one, uh, one class, uh, one woman who was in the class came in and she said that she was watering her garden that morning. And she said she'd watered her garden hundreds of times over the years. But that morning, she said, was different. It felt like it was the first time she'd ever watered her garden. She was being really mindful. And it was quite an experience for her. Simple, but quite profound. And then her, her mind took a big leap in sharing with us. And she said, how have we survived for so long without being mindful? She said, terrible things are decided and done when mindfulness isn't present. Oh, I just get goosebumps every time I remember it because it was so accurate. And it really, everybody in the class probably got goosebumps. They didn't say that, but they were kind of, whoa, yes. It was a, a wonderful sharing from her and a teaching. The Buddha Dhamma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. One way of looking at this is that without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perception, is blurred. And we experience life through the filters of ideas and preconceptions, opinions, judgments, hopes, fears, or and or similar past experiences. So a very um, sort of ordinary uh, uh, possibility that probably... Uh, many of you have experienced is that you you meet a person a brand new person for the first time someone you've never seen and never met before and you don't see them as they actually are at that meeting you see them in relationship to your thoughts about them the thoughts clicking, clicking, clicking about that person in you, how much you like them well you don't even know them but You know, we do that. How much you like them. How much you're attracted to them. Or how much you think you don't like them. Or how much you feel that you're not attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of somebody else. So you're seeing them through that one. So you see this new person in relationship, maybe for instance, to the similar qualities that you're thinking about of this other person, who you do know. Or you see this new person in relationship to how you hope they are. Or what you want from them. Or hope you can get from them. Or hope you won't get from them. With all of this, you're of course not experiencing this person you've just met for the very first time just simply as they are. There's no space for that with all of that other stuff going on. And I bet every one of us in here have had that experience to some degree in our life. And then, maybe you've gotten to know this person 
you get to know this person and you find out they weren't they aren't exactly or they aren't really at all hardly maybe like your imagined ideas about them were without mindfulness everything we perceive is like this everything we see taste hear touch smell think is or can be immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thoughts, our various habit patterns. Meditation practice grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a very clear, sharp focus to see things as they really truly are. As though for the first time. Without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, what is often called beginner's mind. And one of my favorite stories about this is about one of my grandsons. Some of you have heard this story. When he was two and a half years old, and I was visiting the family, my son and daughter-in-law and my grandson, and they were living in Pennsylvania at the time. And my daughter-in-law and I went for a walk with this little two-and-a-half-year-old boy down the hill. They lived a little bit out in the country, down the hill behind their house. And this little boy saw a pine cone. He'd never seen one before, because where they lived before, there weren't any. So he saw a pine cone. It was the first time in his experience of a pine cone. So he picked it up, and he looked at it. He turned it every which way, every way he could too, turn it, He stuck it up to his nose and smelled it all over. He stuck his tongue out and licked it all over. Really investigated this wonderful thing that he had just found that he'd never experienced before. He got to know that thing. So then his mother and I very dutifully said, Alex, it's a pine cone. And he kind of looked at us like... Who cares? You know, but he didn't say that. But he repeated, he was a good boy, he said, pinecone. But then he went back to his investigating what it was, really. It didn't matter. The name didn't matter. It was such a teaching, I've never forgotten it. His fresh, open, beginner's mind. And he's 20 now. He's still like that in a lot of ways. I'm very grateful. He's my teacher, still, <laughs> in many ways. This is really an attitude of mind that we can learn, or we could say relearn, and and to bring into our life as a whole, and it's transformative. It's really transformative and potentially deeply healing. One of the definitions of these teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine. The best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. There are four domains of mindfulness, four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. So this evening, we'll uh, explore to some degree the first of these domains, which is paying attention to the body in the body. 
just the body as such. Not one's ideas about it and or our interpretations of it. And of course there are many and varied and, and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give careful attention to. And as you all know, one of our primary orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible via mindfulness of breath is potentially profound. In making the simple sensations of the in and out breath at the nostrils or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or the heart at the heart center or the sensorial experience of the breath coming into and moving through and then back out through the whole body, I've actually been very deeply grateful and even awed at the depth and breadth of the purification of the heart and the mind that happens with this kind of attention. As well as for what comes to be sensed, seen, and understood with a very simple and careful attention to this direct experience of breath. So right now, just for a moment, close your eyes. And let the attention drop into your breath. Mindfully absorb into the very simple sensations of in-breath and out-breath, either in the area of the nostrils or the rising and falling movement in the, of the breath in the belly or in the chest or whole body breathing. and being present with this with as little self as possible. And now just very simply notice, are you trying to control or are you trying to manipulate the breath? Or are you just simply allowing the breath to breathe itself? Just noticing. And it's very important to notice notice this without judgment without any self-recrimination. Just simply notice. In a moment of clear seeing, there's often a sense of relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. 
So the body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. And not really our ordinary, everyday, quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity, but a closer, a much more intimate, ongoing and careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and the various movements of the body in getting up and getting back down again, flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, lifting things, carrying things, even bringing mindfulness of the body in the body to the experiences of falling asleep and waking up. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone? A me? An I? Behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? The possibility of beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be just simply known as standing? Sitting, just simply sitting. Walking, as just simply walking. Without the layer of I am, or the internal feeling of this is me walking, this is me sitting, etc., Once many years ago, uh, my teacher at that time, Saito Upandita, the Venerable Upandita, asked me in a practice meeting, he said, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're being mindful of and noting walking and standing and sitting or any bodily sensations? Well, for a brief moment, I was quite caught by the question which in retrospect I realized was kind of a test of my practice at that time. He wasn't sort of arbitrarily asking me an odd question such as that. He was checking me out. (laughs) But very quickly, um, during that practice meeting, there was quite a spontaneous reflection and a response to Sayadaw. An honest response. And I said, no, Nope, there's no woman, there's no man. There's no anybody known when I'm directly connected with and mindful of walking or whatever bodily phenomena is happening. It's a really good observation and question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body in the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single movement of experience, movement uh, 
every single moment, excuse me, every single moment of our experience arises out of. So for instance, the intention too, followed by action or inaction. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention or volition, as it's sometimes called, begins. Where it starts from and how it feels in the body. I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way stand up or not stand up or sit or lift an arm, take a step or speak particular words. If we think and feel that our actions come solely from the place of a separated or a separate, isolated I and me, we will eventually, or maybe quite quickly, experience some degree of suffering. Our actions of body, mind, and speech are always in response or They're either a response or a reaction in relationship to something that occurred in our immediate field of experience. Always. They're either a reaction or a response to something that occurred in our immediate field of experience, which may often or may sometimes be overtly or subtly related to past experience, even long past experience. As mindful awareness of the body in the body blossoms, there's a very natural, non-conceptual, intuitive, growing understanding of the subtler causes of suffering that begin to take hold in us, which can then open our heart to an unimaginable expanse and uh, compassion in relationship to ourself and in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body? A number of years ago here in Taos, I had a student, very, very deeply dedicated, longtime practitioner. His name was Roy. Uh, and right up to his dying moment, he was a very deeply dedicated practitioner. He died of AIDS related complications. And I would go, he was here in the hospital in Taos. He died here in the hospital in Taos. And at one point, he went in and he never left. And when he went in, I would go and visit him every day and sit with him for a while in the hospital. And one afternoon, he was lying in his bed and I was there with him. And there wasn't much left of his body at that point. He was just laying there. He couldn't stand having any, anything touching him. So he had, he, he had underwear on 
That's it. And he couldn't stand to be covered. Nothing, nothing. He was laying on the bed, but he couldn't stand to have covers or a sheet or anything on him. So he was laying there. And he stretched his arm up, straight up into the air above him. And he left it up there and he kept turning it around and back and forth and around and around and looking at it with intent, an intent looking, really, really giving it his full attention, greatly interested in this arm that was sticking up towards the ceiling. And he said in a very cool and yet odd way, all he said was one word. He said, wow, wow. Kind of said it like, wow, like that. (laughs) Yeah, that was quite something. He was quite something. The form, the posture, and the movements of the body are totally dependent or really interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or disliking of some particular experience or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed at that point. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear unfettered and intimate attention to the body itself, its movements, and the process of intention that we begin to really directly experience this truth. The next domain of mindfulness that the uh, mindfulness of the body in the body that the Buddha points us towards is giving attention to all of the parts of the body. And the classical Buddhist texts talk about the 32, practice of the 32 parts of the body. Not much of a practice that's offered, this practice is not offered very much in the West. Occasionally it is. So, In this case, hair, skin, muscles, bones, and all of the various internal organs and all the fluids. In your practice here in retreat, you most likely have noticed them as they make themselves known, such as the intestine and the bladder, heart, lungs, maybe the liver even, mucus, Saliva. I got a lot of mindfulness going on with that right now, with my getting over being sick. The classical 32 parts of the body practice, as I mentioned, really isn't one that's taught very often here in the West. But it can be a very powerful practice in beginning to dissolve 
one's ideas and identification with this body being a solid entity and being mine, being me. And I certainly have no doubt that you have noticed many, many parts of your body, even during this first few days of this retreat. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way? That's the question, in a mindful way. So, for instance, how identified are you with the hair on your head? Or the lack of it? Or the hair on your body? How do you attend to the experience of your intestine? And the digestive process therein? Or to a moment, or maybe many moments, uh, experience of the heart? How do you experience your skin? This bag of flesh that holds all the various contents of the body. How do you experience your nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, mucus, or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to uh, call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness. And again, meaning non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified, that kind of attention. Just the body in the body, without the layers of ideas and interpretations and concerns about it. Just the body as a body. This can really be a very powerful aspect of practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual ideas of solidity and one's identification with one's own body and in relationship to other bodies. And some words from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplate, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a meditator abides contemplating the body as a body. So, just consider for a moment, how do you identify yourself? For most of us, if not all of us, a primary and large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa, the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality, rupa. So, considering this for a moment in relationship to yourself. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm gender fluid. I'm thin. I'm fat. I'm not too thin. I'm not too fat. I'm tall. I'm short. I'm of average height. I'm good-looking. I'm beautiful. I'm ugly. I'm plain. I'm attractive. I'm unattractive. I'm dark-skinned. 
I'm light-skinned. I have good skin. I have bad skin. My nose is large. My nose is too big. My nose is small. I have a cute nose. I'm wrinkled and old and weak. I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned. And on and on and on and on. With all these personal identities constantly changing over the years or just within days or within just moments in our mind. Even though we engage tremendous effort and energy and time in clinging to these various identities. There's really no place to hang our identity hat for more than just a few moments, if that even. No place to rest in this constantly changing relative perception and idea of who we think we are. So a very simple personal example. In the last few years, I've shrunk. I've shrunk quite a bit. I have shrunk over two inches. And I've always identified myself as an a woman of average height. Now I'm a short person and getting shorter day by day, week by week, year by year. I'm going to be a little person pretty soon. (laughs) A little old lady, that's what's happening. (laughs) That's my new identity coming up. (laughs) Another important and potentially profoundly insightful aspect of mindfulness can be the establishment in the body that the body, as the body is as related uh, to the fact that in fact our bodies, in essence, our bodies are not different from any other form. Not different from any other rupa. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. So potentially, a quite a non-ordinary way to cut through the concept of this body as a solid and static entity and to cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered uh, a profound teaching and a very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. And if we sincerely and seriously take it up, it can be a window, can be an opening for us to the direct experience and discernment and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of rupa, the ultimate reality of form, one aspect of the reality of how it really is, how or what this body, as well as every other form, really is. The teaching and the practice is about directly uh, discerning the four elements or the four great elements, earth, water, fire, and air, or wind, as it's sometimes called, through directly experiencing the specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body in relationship to sensations. 
And we can do this when we're sitting, uh, when the body is moving, or lying down, doesn't matter. Standing. So this evening, I just like to mention the uh, characteristics and the the characteristics and the sensations that are expressions of these characteristics. Um, and at some point, a little uh, later in the retreat, I'll offer uh, uh, a more direct t- teaching about it, and we'll do a guided sit with it. Uh, it's quite interesting. So just uh, to mention it this evening, the earth element, the sensations that we experience all the time, I mean, every day, uh, that are related to earth element, are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The sensations that we regularly experience that are related, that are manifestations of the water element, are flowing and cohesion. The sensations that are the manifestations of the fire element that we experience quite often are heat or warmth and coldness or cold. And the sensations that are the manifestations of the air or the wind element that we experience, it's subtler, but we experience it a lot, are supporting and pushing. All and each of these bodily sensations are very, very readily available for us to experience and be mindful of at any moment. And as I said, later on in the retreat, we'll explore it a little more directly. How intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these most basic and universal experiences. This body in its elemental nature, essentially no different than any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse seemingly maybe not something we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting. But the truth of the matter is that there are many, many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Insects, maybe birds and, or other creatures, and certainly the corpses of plants and trees and flowers. Lots of them. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose, or just to deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it's possible to observe this directly quite often. I've been in retreat and various places over the years and at times quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses and then continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes uh, that things do as and after they die. And once when I was on a retreat with uh, a few friends 
on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, where we rented a house on the shore of the ocean for a couple of months uh, to practice together. I had the great good fortune, maybe good fortune only in the world of Dhamma practice, but I had the great good fortune to come upon a dead seal on the beach. Uh, I was thrilled by that. (laughs) So every day for a month, I walked down to that body and I sat with it for a little while every day, observing and letting in the process of decomposition and decay, which in this particular instance was happening quite quickly because it was being helped along by the uh, seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh to be very delicious food. This daily practice during that month-long retreat was really a heart-mind-changing experience for me on quite a few levels. Ajahn Sumedho, who until uh, some just a few years ago was the abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England and who is the uh, most uh, senior Western monk in the Thai forest tradition uh, of Ajahn Chah. He tells about a time when he was living in the monastery in Thailand and asked uh, if he would uh, be allowed to spend part of a day practicing in the city morgue. Well, because he was a monk, uh, the authorities felt they couldn't really refuse, so they let him go in, though he said that they were quite reluctant, but they did let him go in there to practice. And he said that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged. Actually, the word that he used, were fully assaulted. He said the first thing that hit him when he went in was the smell, which he said almost drove him to run out the door. But he said he just stayed mindfully present, and little by little, little by little, it became tolerable. Just a smell. Just a scent. And he spoke about his long-standing and very deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart as he took in all the various stages of decay that were all around him in the morgue. And he mentioned at one point that he looked up on the ceiling and saw what he called all sorts of parts up there stuck to the ceiling, which at first he found quite puzzling. And then he very quickly realized that the very bloated body that was right in front of him could explode at any moment, which he said he dearly hoped would not happen. And it didn't. (laughs) But he knew what those parts were, why they were there. He said that when he went back out onto the street, he said he saw people in a radically new way, with what he called a radically wide-open heart. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, and living and non-living are mortal. And we're so attached to form. Probably first and foremost, our own form. And also all sorts of other forms. 
And for many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for an attachment to, for instance, forms that please us, forms that we're close to, forms that we care about, forms that are beautiful to us, or forms that we're just simply habituated to, forms that maybe amuse us, forms that are interesting to us, forms that maybe we really just take for granted, the familiar forms. I think that what is actually kind of strange and amazing is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they won't change, won't die. Which, if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, intimately, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or not so subtle tension and stress in our heart, mind, and body. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be really helpful towards cutting through this this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again. And what we find when we connect and look carefully at the body and in the body are sensations. Much of the drama of our thought and feelings and actions begin with sensations. Through mindfulness, we can train ourselves to be in the body and to receive them. To be present with the sensations of our body is not an act of will. It's actually an act of unconditional acceptance which is one very important aspect of metta. With grace and with at least some degree of equanimity, we're able to accept the sensations of our body. This acceptance implies not fighting or resisting what's presenting itself, whatever it is, not wanting things to be different, and not concealing or hiding from the moment's experience in the body. And in fact, in such moments, we feel and we intuitively know our activity as belonging to life. So, some very ordinary examples that relate to our life here in retreat, and of course also outside of a formal sitting practice, sitting retreat setting. Maybe we wash our dishes as an act of generosity and love. In that sense, it's a holy act. 
we open a door and we clearly sense and know what the wrist is doing and the sensations in the hand and the fingers. Maybe we feel our body contract, turning away from cold, for instance, or from very hot weather. And we catch ourselves and consciously, with mindful awareness, rise up to meet it. The choice to be mindfully aware is often an act of some degree of courage. Someone once uh, once said, and I think it was the famous dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, I think it was her that said this, the body is tremendously homesick for us and it waits patiently for our return. So maybe we ignored its invitation for many years or run away from its invitations for many years. When we do say yes, it's immediately available. Full of life. Full of know-how. And then all of a sudden we find that we don't need any training to really be fully alive that we only lack the determination to feel our aliveness. The body is an excellent meditation subject. It will always tell us the truth. So for instance, if you break a leg, the body's not going to give off a pleasant feeling. It doesn't have the capacity to get lost in the past. It doesn't have the capacity to project into the future. And it's the meditation object that most easily bridges the gap between the formal and informal aspects of our meditation practice. Also, mindful presence in the body can often be quite a safe haven when thoughts and emotions are raging or maybe just feeling too overpowering to be with. And I think all of us experience, at least to some degree now, that we're living in a time when the very rapid development of technology and the pace of our culture are making it more and more difficult to stay connected to our bodies. Consequently, cultivating the intention to practice with this first domain of mindfulness really becomes more and more important. Mindfulness practice is like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of our practice, we each find the way. And because each of us have experienced specific conditions, conditioning along the way of our lives, many aspects of the path and its fruits quite uniquely emerge for each of us in relationship to our particular conditioning. The treasures, the fruits that we discover along the way are healing and beautiful and the simple 
universal truths of the way of things. And this is what sets us free. And some words from the Buddha. There's one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness, and to clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, and to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered on the body. So in closing the talk this evening, I'd like to offer you uh, a wonderful and inspiring instruction from the Buddha that you can certainly offer yourself uh, anytime. And this is called A Single Excellent Night. And it comes from the Majjhima Nikaya, the Sutta number 131. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is in her, it is in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. So, let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.